Hi, welcome to One Degree Shifts. I'm Pascal Tremblay, your host. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Nectar, where psychedelic support ecosystem. And today I'm really thrilled to talk to my friend Rod. Hi, Rod. Pascal, good to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Our pleasure. And Rod is the CEO and founder of Mission Club, and he's also uh, the podcast host and creator of Minority Trip Report. Uh, what is Minority Trip Report, Rod? Minority Trip Report is a podcast for underrepresented views in psychedelics, mental health, and consciousness. So when I say it's a play on the movie Minority Report, um, because I often find with marginalized and minority views, people often uh, experience some sort of surveillance. And the whole Minority Trip Report movie is essentially about surveillance. So it's a trip. It's a play on the movie. It's pretty clever, I thought. Thanks. <laughs> I have those moments sometimes. <laughs> and can you tell us a bit more about Mission Club as well? Yeah, sure. So Mission Club is a education investment platform. Um, and our aim is to broaden the pool of capital in the psychedelic space by including a wider net of people who can invest and become owners in, in companies emerging in this space. Um, some may know that less than 2% of venture capital raised every year goes to uh, people of color or women. Uh, and if you happen to be a woman of color, then good luck finding any capital at all. And so part of our theory of change is to not only make venture capital and, and investing more accessible to people because venture capital has been locked into very close-knit society, uh, sort of community of people for a long time, for the last 50 years. We want to make these accessible um, through education, through rallying people, through sort of bringing to the forefront um, sort of like these opportunities that are emerging. But also we want to have a di much more diverse uh, community of uh, investors. Uh, and, the, and the theory of change being that if you diversify the ownership, maybe the companies that emerge will also represent the sort of ethos of inclusion, equity, and access. Beautiful. I love, I love what you're doing there. I'm flabbergasted by the 2% number. That's really interesting. Um, Stunning, really, that the number is so low. But for now, let's talk about businesses and psychedelic businesses, especially. Um, I'm a huge fan of this idea of psychedelic businesses uh, being reflection of the teachings that we get from our experiences and our journeys. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of an idealistic view, like it's something that we can reach over time. And it's a kind of a process for everyone. Um, and I'm curious what you think around, like, what is a psychedelic business exactly? And, and what does it mean to you? It's a good question, right? So I think the word psychedelic business gets thrown around a lot, but I sort of ask, I kind of flip it because I think to me, it's not about psychedelic business as much as uh, psychedelic business models, right? If you're just uh, applying the same business model and selling drugs, whether it's, you know, miniaturized ayahuasca experiences or not, it's the same thing. Like, it's a business model that gets scaled up and hence the impact and the kind of like, you know, um, uh, sort of like the business, it's dictated by this business model and what, you know, what it's selling and how it's sort of scaling and so on. When I think of, um, let's say, the business of psychedelics and psychedelic business models that reflect maybe in some way or form our experiences, and mind you, our experiences can be terrible, Right, I'm not one of those people that believe every experience is blissful, and you know you're up in the clouds and sort of like uh, frolicking through a Burning Man with glitter on your body and stuff like that. So, 
Although that's Absolutely. fun too. I've done that. It's great. It's awesome. It's a, it's a good time. But uh, you know, I think like there's challenging trips, but I think there's a lot to be said about where and with who your expenses and medicines. So I, th- I really think the question is, you know, to me, when I've had these profound transcendental experiences, they've been around about, you know, about feeling really present. I felt fulfilled. I felt heard. I felt seen. I also felt like a lightness of being. Um, but mostly I felt uh, very safe in the community and the settings that I was in. Right? And that safety, that psychological safety is ultimately, uh, you know, allowed me to think differently, dream differently, be different, you know? Um, and so that state of being. So if I think about those moments, like, uh, so let's say slowing down, um, being allowed to be, being empowered, how does that translate in, in business? Of course, we're talking about very ideal states, and it's not easy. These are very complex problems, and psychedelics won't fix everything. They, they'll fix, perhaps, hopefully, the mindset that will then allow us to address these issues, or at least tackle them in a courageous, honest way. Um, you know, I think about, for me, when I talk about Mission Club, I think one of the first things is we talk about ownership, right? Is there some way to distribute ownership or the feeling of ownership, right? You know, we talk about reciprocity a lot. You know, the very guardians, the stewards of these medicines for eons, are they being enabled, empowered? Are they, are they healing? And if we are taking and learning from them, can we reciprocate? That's a psychedelic business model in a way because reciprocation is not something it's easy. You know, it's talked about as fetishized, but really, who is doing it? You know, um, so I think ownership is one area, right? But also, like, you know, you can talk about as simple as, and this doesn't have to be exclusive to psychedelic businesses, right? Like, how do you treat your employees? How does the CEO show up? Right? There's so many different ways that you could have psychedelic business models or at least how your your internal protocols, how do you treat people? It all boils down to humility and how you treat others, right? And compassion. And business model doesn't necessarily just have to be like, oh, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily about the pricing and how you're selling services. It can be about how you're treating people, your employees, how you treat your stakeholders. You know, um, is there some sort of reciprocal uh, uh, sense of sort of uh, giving back? Um, does it reflect in the ownership of the company? Do employees have a larger stake in the business? Right? Dr. Bronner's, the employees are also part owners of the business. That's a psychedelic business model, right? So we get too caught up in, I think, the psychedelic business because there's just no way better to describe it. But as far as I'm concerned, it's just same old businesses that just happen to be in the psychedelic space. It's not the same thing. Yeah, good points. And um, I'd like to call back kind of uh, Frederick Lalu's work on reinventing organizations and uh, the teal model that he designed or he he noticed in a lot of different companies uh, in his research is to me like the ideal psychedelic business because it really talks about what you, you shared around decentralization, distribution of power, like self-management and having processes and different protocols within the organization to really create this holistic, multidimensional organization that keeps growing and keeps evolving over time as the people within it uh, uh, changes as well. And so um, I'm curious, like what you've seen in, in this sort of psychedelic model space or like how the space has been growing. There's a lot of um, kind of exuberance and a lot of uh, kind of excitement around the potential of psychedelics. I'm curious, like where you're seeing the space evolve and 
and uh, and what you'd like to see. Yeah, I think you made a really good point. I think the you know talking about different sort of structures and different ways of doing business, different ways of like distributing ownership. This is this is not a new thing, right? There's lots of there's you know a big body of work um, that we've been exploring this idea of this cooperatives and you know and so on. This has been done, right? So again, just because it's psychedelic doesn't mean it has to be all brand new. We can learn from a lot of things. We can draw experiences. We can draw lessons. I think the issue becomes is perhaps this misunderstanding that just because you have a business, it needs to scale a certain way. Scalability comes into the question all the time. And I think business, investing, investors, these are all part of a very fantastic ecosystem. You need all of them. You need... You need people who will work in businesses. You need founders. You need people who will invest. And there's different kinds of investors. Some of them will, you know, angel investors will invest in the founder, founding team and their vision above all. They're called angel investors because they care more about the passion uh, that drives the team because there's so much else that is unknown. What's going to happen downstream? Nobody really knows. Nobody really knows what's going to happen two years from now. But the problem is I think there's a misunderstanding between businesses raising money and they all think, going to VCs are the first way to raise money. VCs are fantastic in the role that they play in the ecosystem. It's not about good or bad. It's about, are they the right kind of money? And so there's a complete mismatch in expectations sometimes, right? Like if you're going to take VC money, you have to be able to scale in a way that VCs expect. And VCs are not, you know, uh, demigods or anything like that. They have their own uh, perceptions and misconceptions, let's just say, right? Somebody who's apply, who invests in SaaS and software, all of a sudden comes to psychedelics, cannot expect the same thing. First of all, the space, you know, there's lots of differences. But coming back to your question, I think um, what I'm seeing is, I think when the first um, companies went public, I think there was a gold rush Right. And this is also in the time of the pandemic. Right. There's already like all this money floating around. Like, you know, you could, you know, you could, you know, you could write a tweet and then have a five slide deck and then raise 20 million dollars like the next day. Um, <laughs> gone are those days. You and I were just talking about what's happening in with Silicon Valley Bank as we speak. It's kind of like insane. Um, so there's a lot of irrational exuberance i think at that time because you know and this is where it gets a little difficult right like on one hand it's truly exciting it's really truly exciting to see this resurgence uh, of of the space coming out of hibernation fantastic right and of course we've all healed through the medicine most of us have a lot of us have and so you're to see like go wow i can actually participate in a legitimate way now i can help it grow but then as with everything now hype takes over and we don't have we don't have enough science we don't have enough experts and you know this is all this unknown hype dominance and when you have hype dominance that affects the way people invest money that affects the way people scale their businesses or the startups or so-called startups i think the stage we're in right now although it's a very difficult time you know whether you're a founder running your business you know you have to be very capital constrained. You you know you have to be very uh, frugal. You also have to plan out your capital spends and sort of like how you're going to raise money in the next couple of you know a couple of months or whatever. 
Um, on the other hand, if you're an investor, you're looking at, oh my God, what do I do? Where do I find liquidity? Where do I find, you know, where do I invest? Where are the good deals? Should I invest anymore? What's going to happen with my portfolio companies already? Is it going to melt down? But in the same time, a lot of the tourists from the last two years have gone. They've left. Because the surface level, all that hype is gone, right? So in a, in a way, now everybody that you have, for the most part, are people who are high conviction, who really, really believe in this space. So the tone of the conversation have shifted entirely. Now it's a much more practical, right? It's about just because, again, just because you work with psychedelics doesn't mean you'll succeed. Because ultimately, if your business sucks, or if your model sucks, or if you don't know how to build a business, if you don't know how to retain talent, if you don't know how to attract talent, if you don't know how to raise money, um, all these things are business problems, right? Um, so, you know, where we started the first years, I think, with sort of everybody going into biotech, and that's where all the money was going. Now it's a lot about, okay, capital efficiency. How can you run a, run a business well? You know, what's the quality of your team or the quality of your expertise on the team? Other sides of the psychedelic sort of periphery, like software to better run clinics, right? Insurance, you know, ultimately, if it's going to cost eight grand for two sessions of MDMA and 16 grand for two sessions of psilocybin, this is most people can't afford it. We need coverage. Who is addressing coverage? Yeah, I was, I was reading someone today, just today on Instagram, how they're opening a retreat in Oregon. And because of the costs associated with it, it ends up costing like $3,000 or more for a session, which, yeah. you know, in their underground um, sphere here, you can get a really good facilitator for like maybe $800 for like a really beautiful experience. And so that model is keeping some people out, right? Totally, totally, right? And I mean, even for regular people, like if you're going to sort of like, for the lack of a better word, mainstream psychedelics, you coverage isn't in, 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 very important, right? Then if you're running a, a clinical network, how are you acquiring the land? How are you running those businesses? You know, like it's, it's, there's a lot of complexity here. And when we talk about psychedelics, you have to, you have to appreciate it. It's a, it's a very fragmented, but also very complex value chain, right? Everything from the medicines to the logistics to the location to the, to the kind of sort of like molecules you're working on to the, software and the protocols to the practitioners it's there's it's very complex so as far as i'm concerned it's not an industry yet in any way if anything it's a loose association of people building stuff together it's not an industry mm -hmm. yeah yeah i spoke to an investor in the space a few months ago and he had a really interesting take on on you know why investing so much in biotech and those kind of things where typically some people would be like well that's not the way to do it and his point was that um, you know there's multiple different pathways towards healing there's multiple people where certain types of companies and 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 offerings will reach them where the you know the underground ceremonial aspect is not going to reach them and that really like you know uh, changed my mind a little bit on kind of that model is like I see the value in that sort of money going in different places. However, what I've noticed personally is that there's a um, a huge kind of priority placed by the major investors in the space on hitting the home runs and really like going for like the IPOs. And of course, that's there's a financial piece to that. But am I too idealistic in thinking that there's more money that should be going towards helping people first? 
I'm questioning myself here in terms of like, is that something that eventually will become more of a priority as we keep redefining what wealth truly means? Or is this kind of the first or second phase of, of money pouring in that's coming in from um, the kind of old paradigm of you know, capitalism, basically? It's a very important question I think you're asking. It's not simple, much like anything. I think the answer is it depends. Because if you're looking at how institutions invest in money, right? Pharmaceutical drug discovery is very, very expensive. And so you need institutions with deep pockets that can not only fund phase one, but out the way to phase three, right? Mm -hmm. And every phase you're going to have to like, based on that success of that, that phase of that clinical trial, you're going to have to raise further tranches of money. And you need institutions with deep pockets to take you through the entire funnel. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to succeed. It always takes on average 10 years to go through a clinical uh, sort of uh, drug discovery process on average, mm -hmm. right? And a billion dollars, extremely expensive. So I think the important question is to ask, what are the mechanisms of support in the business that you're in, right? If you're running a retreat, again, if you go into somebody, an institution that invests in biotech or, or, or pharma, that's an extreme mismatch, right? So it's very important to understand that it, just because it's psychedelics, it falls under the umbrella. There's different kinds of businesses. Now, to your question about where money should be flowing, that is part of the, a, a big challenge, I think, because the pool of capital is so tiny, right? So how do we actually motivate people? How do we broaden the capital pool, whether it's people who invest it, you know, in, in, in sort of early stage founders, is people who donate more, are giving more to charity. You have to ask where, where should the money go? That's an equally important problem. And I'm a big believer in just because you, again, work with psychedelics doesn't mean you will succeed. I think there's this like rational, irrational exuberance on the other side as well in our community, which is that we have this sense of exceptionalism. It's that just because we've done, you know, we just licked a toad, I'm now going to succeed in every part of my life, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I think, so we have to get over ourselves. And in terms of practicality, we actually have to actually ask and expect better of ourselves too. And we have to mature. We have to grow up as well and can't just blame business for everything. Right. And that's so true. And I feel like part of the hype and, uh, in, in some ways, like part of the reason why the capital is flowing in certain ways that I feel it, yes, we really want to heal and we really want to transform and we generally want to change the way society uh, and healthcare works. But I feel like it also reflects kind of our immaturity with integration mm, and doing totally. our own work and really honoring the process that it, it takes time and there's ups and downs and it's not like you said, licking a toad and you're going to be successful at everything. <laughs> um, and I feel like a lot of that, um, from my perspective, is like asking the right questions. Um, and I feel like kind of the downfall of the, the markets in a way is a time for pausing and asking the right questions. Um, what are some questions that you feel um, the space overall or founders or investors should be asking themselves right now? So what is the problem I'm trying to solve? Number one, what is the core problem? And really, really dig into it. Forget about the competition, right? 
I mean, there's a business philosophy, like part of it, you know, it's like composition is for losers. It's like, don't worry about what others are doing. You know, think about what you can do and do that the best way possible. So, but I, again, I think there's a sense of exceptionalism in the space and I'm not impermeable to it, right? We all, we all, you know, we all are susceptible to this sort of uh, exceptionalism, I think, because the space is, despite it being very potent and, and, you know, full of enthusiasm and conviction, we can be a little insular. So we have to ask, okay, what is the problem I'm solving? That's number one. Number two, I also think it's okay not to scale. If you're running a business and you're running a retreat center that is actually helping people, healing people, it's super powerful. You've changed the trajectory of people's lives. It's okay not to have 50 of them. I think there's, a, there's this pressure that people feel that everything has to be scalable. It doesn't have to be scalable per se, right? That's number mm-hmm. two. I think number three, we have to think about access in a very, very serious kind of way. You know, I'm a person of color, a straight man, person of color, but immigrant, Muslim, grew up pretty poor, came into Canada as an international student. There's a lot of things I didn't have. You know, um, there's a lot of ways I have an upper hand for sure. You know, I'm still a, a, a straight man, which I've had in some ways probably things a lot easier for me than others. But I think the question here is like, you know, it's not a, it's not it's not an easy thing to ask, but how do we actually access? So how do we actually address the issue, uh, the issue of access and equity? Right? It's not just about color; it's about class ultimately. Right? Healing economic pressures, uh, financial precarity. These are very, very serious problems. You know, so we have to address them. So how do we actually bake that in, and make sure everybody has a chance to experience the healing powers of these medicines? So those are a few I think that I, I, I think a lot about. Um, I think number two, the scalability is something that I, I, I hear about a lot, right? You know, um, I think it's better to mm-hmm. ask for good advice and bring business leaders and others in, really try to broaden our space. And, you know, and, I'll just, and, and on this one point is to say like, you know, the space has existed for a long time, despite 50 years of criminalization, stigmatization, illegality, and so on, because of the conviction of the very people who are, you know, the sort of the forebearers, the stewards. And I'm talking about like the modern times, not sort of, you know, the indigenous roots of this medicine per se. But now as we sort of are, are sort of emerging out of this hibernation, I think we have to broaden and invite others in. If we remain insular, we're going to fail. Yeah, and we saw what happened with Synthesis. You know, they bought a huge piece of land yep. in, in Oregon and they got burned in some ways. And um, yeah, and the retreat model is especially is really difficult to scale because it's already really difficult to just want a single retreat. The margins can be really low and it can be quite a challenge to scale the services and integration and those type of things. And um I love that you bring in the smallness and the integrity that comes of smallness um, and one degree shifts that can happen from, you know, having a retreat that has like 10 to 12 people going through every month. Um, how does that compare to the impact of a retreat that has 10 people going every week? Um, you can have a nice discussion about that in, in the long term. And 
um, come up with some different uh, answers. But um, it's interesting too, in terms of, of that piece is, and it kind of touches on the investment piece as well is kind of our attachment towards um, growth and attachment to bigness and attachment to mm-hmm. um, com- competition, right? That's why I mentioned kind of an old paradigm earlier is I feel like the new paradigm is all about collaboration, uh, community building, supporting one another, um, you know, letting go of some of the piece of the pie and, 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 uh, uh, for the sake of supporting a, a bigger idea than ourselves. And uh, I'm really excited about that potential for psychedelic organizations is, is really redefining what competition means and, re, you know, redefining it into collaboration. Um, and yeah, maybe King the Nature's, uh, the laws of nature uh, as organizations. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's really well said. And I think what the last, the, the last 10 years of tech have really mess with people's minds in terms of what to expect. I mean, we're seeing it now, right? Money was cheap. Money was everywhere. And so, you know, you spent the entire, you know, part of your raise just on sort of customer acquisition. That's really it, right? Oh, you know, we're Uber. Here's 50% discount on everything. How many grocery delivery apps do we need? Right? <laughs> so you got to wonder where that money came from because money was cheap, right? And now that we're in the sort of like the, the uh, what, what can I say? Like, the sort of like VC winter, I guess, <laughs> is you can see the one the businesses are have have to rethink everything, like the mentality, you know, and that permeates everything, you know. Every founder, what this this sort of like culture of entrepreneurship. On one hand, I think it's a natural evolution of of human culture, right? As you gain agency in your life, as you want more agency in your life, you're gonna want more agency in the way you earn money who you report to, who you're accountable to, you're going to want to be a, be a boss, right? You're going to want to have your own business. Whatever that is, I think that's a beautiful thing. Entrepreneurship to me is one of the most powerful, you know, forces out there. And I don't mean just like running a tech business. I mean like go run a not-for-profit, go become an artist, you know? It doesn't mean you have, it doesn't mean you have mm-hmm. to sell anything. It's the, entrepreneurship to me is the act of creating, which is essentially what an artist does, Right? That's such an that's an mm-hmm. important, powerful force, but it's been bastardized a little bit, right? Oh yeah, you know, because like, if you're not, you know, wearing a hoodie and jeans and the entrepreneur's uniform, which is where put a blazer on, drive a Tesla, you're not successful. All that bullshit, right? And it's sort of like it, I, my point is that kind of like per, that kind of cultural miasma permeates everything, right? And, and, and I'm, I don't, I think psychedelics are not impermeable to that. That's what I'm trying to get at. So. The one other thing I, I wanted to just touch on earlier on is that maybe the fourth to, thing to remember is that it is very, very, very early. The best businesses haven't even emerged yet, right? But do help out. Do get involved. You know, offer help openly, you know? I I really believe that everybody has a part to play here. I'm not just saying that. You know, I really believe what whatever skill set you have, Passion, enthusiasm, skills, these are all really important. And whether you're core to the ecosystem or not does not mean anything. Just come in and participate because there will be ways to be involved. And the good thing about yeah, communities is that, that we, don't forget, we don't forget people like that. That's why I love this community so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a beautiful community. And um, I resonate with the exceptionalism piece because I feel like 
all my friends are in a psychedelic space. Uh, I talk about psychedelic work and therapy with all my friends. Um, and it's very easy to get lost in that and think that it's not super early. You know, there's a sense of uh, it's way more mainstream than it actually is still, even though, you know, Michael Pollan wrote his books and Will Smith has said that he's done multiple ayahuasca ceremonies. Um, and I, I want to touch a little bit on what you shared earlier, because it's still, it stayed with me just how impactful that number was that only 2% of money is going towards uh, minorities or people of color. Can you share more around that in terms of, um, you know, in the psychedelic space, um, where have you, what have you seen in terms of blindsides in that sense? And Yeah, and just to correct uh, that number, 2% of VC goes to, to, to women. And if it's okay. people of color and, again, women of color, it's much, much lower. I think 0. 0.06 or something for black women. Wow. I read a statistic that mm -hmm. black women in the U.S. are six times more likely to start a business, and yet they get, you know, 0.06% of all VC that goes to them. Of course, there's a gap here. Just because you start a business doesn't mean you've gone after VC or it's venture backable, right? So it's, you know, don't take it with a grain of salt, but I think, in you know, just to show you how small the piece of the pie is in terms of what's allocated for women and then people of color and other marginalized founders. So I think there's, there's two things to this, right? One is if you look at the private market, so if you look at people essentially who invest in, let's just say startups or founders, right? Historically, it's been a very, very, very closed off networks of people. And when you have a closed network of, and we, we can talk about the history of venture capital if you want. It's a pretty long story, but it's a fascinating story. It's one of those things when I found, when I read about it, I'm like, oh, I see why things came to be. Nobody's, you know, nobody started going like, ha ha ha, I'm not going to invest in women. It just happened to be this way, right? Because again, momentum builds up, and the same group of people who invest in companies get wealthy, only pull in people like themselves, and so on, right? I think a hilarious. I think I forgot who did the survey, but the the number was I think it was what is Harvard Business Review said forty percent of all VCs have Harvard degrees. Wow! <laughs> so that's amazing. In terms of like because private networks remain private, and you know a lot of the deal flow happens like oh I met so and so very impressive. Who would I prioritize this to? I'll go prioritize to my buddy who I know really well because he gave me a deal. And that buddy may go like, okay, I'll write $100 million, but here I got three other people who look like me, who smell like me, who talk like me. Oh, they got more money too, right? Nobody's, I think, I don't think anybody's trying to be a vicious, you know, malign kind of a person, but it's just how networks work. Mm -hmm. And the issue is that the networks are all closed, Right. The second thing is that there's very little education about how v what VC actually is. I'm not saying anybody can do it. I'm still learning, and I'm not a VC. I do work with a lot of founders and I invest in startups. But, you know, I think there's, there is something to, to be said about learning and really doing the job well because it's not easy. It's very glamorized. It's not easy. But it can be done. At the least, you don't have to have $200,000 in the bank anymore to invest – you can start with $500. You can start with $1,000. AngelList made that completely possible for anyone to become an angel investor. But that comes with education. 
And so again, who does the educating? Where does the education happen? Right? So this is all part of that process. So if you look at like the number of emerging funds, the number of new funds that are coming in, people realize there's something deeply systemically wrong about this. Because if you can't get funding and capital to grow your business, guess what? Who gets screwed? Right? And if you think about the businesses and the business model as a manifestation of the mindsets behind these businesses, then what you're actually doing is you're building the cultural infrastructure that perpetuates the same thought patterns, the same sort of problems. Mm -hmm. So let's mm -hmm. get more capital out. Let's educate more. Let's empower more founders. Let's get, let's connect these two and let's support, you know, and then we can maybe have a, uh, have a thoughtful change in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when we talk about minority perspectives, um, we're not just talking about color, like just, that's just one aspect right. of that. And um, obviously you started the podcast, Minority Trip Report, to talk about these things. Like what are more underrepresented aspects of minority in your mind? Great question. Um, I got to say when I first started the podcast, I was thinking about it for a while and I, I really liked the play on words. As with most great ideas, it came in, came to me in the shower. Um, I was like, "Ah, oh, minority trip for it. Okay, cool." Um, so, are you are you Tom Cruise in the, <laughs> this this whole metaphor? I really or? don't like Tom Cruise at all. Um, I know people hate me. <laughs> I know people are talking about like Tom, Top Gun should win an Oscar. I'm like, hey, whatever. I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good movie, yeah. but Oscar, come on. Um, it was, mm -hmm. um, so for me, when I talked about Minority Trip Report, I think it was really important for me to actually really tease out what, what I want minority to represent, right? What does it mean to me? Because um, there's two things that are really important to consider, and it was really important for me to sort of go through. One is I am not by any means an expert in diversity and equity and inclusion. People have dedicated their entire lives to working on these sort of very complex issues. I'm not that. I am a person of color and I have a lot, you know, in a lot of ways in my life I've been marginalized, but I don't speak for others in the way that I don't have a pedigree of work that I've, I've thought about. You know, but I do have my lived experiences which I think are also a, a good way um, sort of spring from. And the second part was I think minority to me it was really important to me that it did not become pigeonholed as a diversity podcast. Nothing wrong with diversity podcasts, but I think minorities can come from very different places. You know, color is one thing, gender, you know, class is perhaps the most insidious form of discrimination, right? Racism is only 400, 500 years old. Class has existed ever since human complex societies have existed, right? And we don't talk about class very much. So it's really important for me to say it's minority from that perspective. But ultimately, what is the point? The point is to talk about diverse lived experience, right? That's what's really important to me. You know, I, by all means, will have, you know, if a person is white, but they've grown up, you know, poor, I think that's a very important perspective to represent, you know? Because ultimately, it's the lived experience. What does it feel like to be marginalized in that way? We don't talk about this kind of stuff, right? Um, I also mm -hmm. really hate that diversity and has been sort of like made into a monolith as if like, just because I'm brown, now I got to speak for all brown people just because I'm Muslim. Oh, now I obviously speak for all Muslim people, you know, 
uh, I don't. I really don't like that kind of bullshit. Um, and I, I think like ultimately, inclusion and equity is all about giving somebody the dignity of having their own thoughts and having space in the world by which they can, you know, exist however they choose to exist. It's about dignity. It's not about color or any one thing. It's not a monolith. Yeah, well said, beautiful. Um, and the the world is so linear already. Um, I, I think it, in a lot of different ways in our lives, we can use a lot more different perspectives. And I think linking it back to the kind of psychedelic journey and the integration process is um, every new story, every new insight, every new input is a new reflection, a new way to question yourself, question the world, question your ideas and beliefs and, and question your place in the world too, as well. And um, so I feel there's a lot of enriching that can happen from, I, I love how you put it, respecting people's dignity to have their own thoughts and ideas and, and yeah. stories. I really like that. And I, description and I just of, want to clarify, like, I think while I, I feel like I'm focused on, you know, sort of minority perspective in all places, I, I am starting with a very big focus on mobilizing more people and empowering more people to share their stories who happen to be immigrants, who happen to have, you know, who happen to be, have, a, you know, struggled with depression growing up in a single bedroom with five or six other siblings because they're fresh immigrants, right? Who are escaping conflict zones and things like that. There's a lot of work to do to just highlight the marginalized voices in this space. Um, you know, and, and we have to, you know, that's that's like the low-hanging fruit here, right? Allowing people to see themselves mm -hmm. in other people is really important. And again, it's not necessarily about black or white or brown, things like that. I think understanding those lived experiences exist, you know, everywhere. And we have to make content, but to invite those opinions in. Because guess what? When you walk into a room, a crowded room, and nobody looks like you, nobody nobody shares what you, at least on the surface, how you look at the world, you're going to be really discouraged from showing up. And we don't want that. And that also influences what kind of clinic, <laughs> who gets to show up in clinical trials. We all, we, I mean, that's a whole nother mess, obviously, right? Well, <laughs> where's all the health data, the mental health data, all that stuff coming from? Who's it based on? So it, it goes beyond mm -hmm. story. But I'm starting with the story first. I love it. Um, what are what are some ways that this um, kind of lack of awareness or understanding of of class as a minority shows up in the psychedelic space? You think? Oh, great question! I can really talk your ear off about this. <laughs> <laughs> what are the, some of the ones that come up the the strongest for you? I think nobody talks about the you know like so. There's a couple of things. One is because I think there's a part of a larger conversation about like who can actually talk about with some authority about how to steward these experiences, right? And I'm talking about people who are not indigenous or people who don't have a long pedigree of learning to work with these medicines, right? I mean, I'm including therapists in this as well who have, you know, in, in a lot of cases, they have done a lot of work with them, right? So I'm not talking about these people per se, but I think like, you know, this, there's a sense that I think, you know, this, ex this exceptionalism that is reinforced in our space. You know, you do psychedelics once or you're doing, you know, ayahuasca 50 times. And now you're like, okay, I'll go become a life coach. And then 
sell courses on Instagram and I'll go like on a permanent vacation in Costa Rica and broadcast my vulnerability th- through Instagram. Nothing wrong with that inherently, but it's a form of power and influence, right? And, you know, unlike before, people are paying attention, whether they're in psychedelic space or not, they're paying attention. People are seeking. They know there's something deeply wrong with the world today, right? And they're looking for ways to heal. And psychedelics keeps coming back up in the, you know, in the mainstream consciousness now, right? People are curious, but they don't necessarily feel safe to have those conversations anywhere. So when you get broad, you know, broadcasted on all these platforms over again by somebody who's ill-equipped, who's like a life coach, but is like, oh, I'm like 21 years old. I'm like, great, good. I'm sure you've lived a wonderful life, but obviously I'm being a little provocative. I don't mean, you know, it's okay to be 21 years old. I was 21 once and extremely foolish. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah. My point is, I think, you know, that's, that's part of a larger conversation. Like, how do we actually responsibly advocate for these medicines? And I don't have the answer, okay? You know, it's not important that just, you know, you're only an advocate or you can only be responsible tripsitter if you have, you know, a medical degree. If somebody's tripsitted 400 journeys, why are they less equipped or why are they less qualified, right? But we have to have a serious conversation about, what makes somebody qualified to be responsible? Especially in the space where talks about assault and transgressions come up over and over and over again. We have to have a serious conversation about this. Uh, that's number one. Uh, number two, I think, and this one I talk about a lot, and this one is actually close to my heart, is I think there is a... This, this again stems from the exceptionalism, the psychedelic exceptionalism, that there's an aversion to talking about money. You know, we think that anything that mentions profit is like an all, already a corporate overlord that is ready to extract and suck the life out of anybody who, who is here, which is very disingenuous because how many times have I been to a space where everybody's like, oh, I'm here to heal the world, though I also paid a $3,000 for a ticket. And nobody wants mm-hmm. to talk about it. I think it's really hypocritical and disingenuous. You know, profit, a, 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 you know, like a big pharma company as much of a corporation as a small cafe in your neighborhood. Nobody works for free, right? It's a very different business model, yes. Less, you know, fewer shareholders, yes. Hires local people, yes, all these. But they are still making profit. So... When we talk about profit, when we talk about money, let's be a little more smart and nuanced and, and appreciate the level of complexity here. Then we can be much more genuine in how we approach equity and inclusion and access. But really, that, this part like, really irks me. You know, I've had a number of questions like, is it wrong to profit? I'm like, it's not wrong to profit. The question is rather, is it wrong to hoard profit? Exactly, because profit is impact. If you're using it well, it it can touch many, yeah. many lives. It's the same kind of like, you know, <laughs> I joke like, you know, so I, I, years ago, I read this amazing book. It's called Poor Economics. It's a Nobel laureate in economics. And it talks about the psychology of the impoverished. And really talks about like, okay, so what actually is, poverty 
and how do you actually motivate people who are below the margin, right? How do you motivate them? Because clear, just giving them money is not is not effective because it actually takes their agency away, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the key uh, sort of like findings from there is was really funny. And I'm not sure why I'm going on this tangent, but I'll just finish the story. Um, <laughs> is so one of the experiments they ran was um, they looked at what is the marginal impact on the calorie taken for every dollar given to someone, right? So meaning if I give you one extra dollar, how much of that dollar is going to, let's say, the um, staples? So fish, or sort of the protein, grains, and so on. And how much of that dollar is going to other things? So somebody who's really, really struggling is not eating, let's say, two meals or three meals a day. You expect that most of that money will go to substance and sort of like things, things that are like food, shelter, maybe. What they've noticed is that after a certain point, surprisingly enough, more of that dollar goes to things like cigarettes, things like going to watch more TV. And obviously men do this more than women do. Women, the money actually goes into their own families and the community. Men are like, all right, I'll go smoke another cigarette and go hang out with my buddies. Um, and we know what that's like, um, which is fun, but also like not surprising, right? Um, and the interesting thing about that is that when you have more money going to things like television, cigarettes, and tea, things that actually alter your consciousness, then you're actually talking about greater amount of my income going to things like escaping my body, escaping my pain, escaping my current reality, right? Um, and there, I guess the, what I'm trying to say is I think when we talk about, we have to talk about what money represents. I think that's really the core question here, right? Money is not just, you know, money is not just like a affordance, it's power, it's influence, and things like that. And I'm not saying let's go tell everybody how much we make and how much my house is worth and all that stuff. But let's also just be more conscious and less foolish. And and I think the reason that we can be so disingenuous is because the spaces we, you know, sort of go into are actually not very diverse. It's very, it's very much like an echo chamber. Yeah, and you know, and what you shared around the power and privilege too is that um, those spaces, not a lot of them are created by people of minority. They, for example, are retreat space and um, the retreat owners, for example, like their relationship to money greatly influences the therapeutic space, like from top down all the way to the bottom of the food, the supply chain and the experience itself, like that relationship to money from the founders and their views on the world affects the whole therapeutic experience. And so everyone who goes into that retreat space gets influenced by the energetic fabric of that retreat space because of the owners creating the space, owning the space, managing the space, setting pricing, hiring different people, their relationship between themselves and their employees affects the space where their source, their medicine affects the space and et cetera, et cetera. And so by having structures that enable a more variety of people to have an influence like we're we're changing the whole space on a pretty large level and influencing it for the better totally, I feel. 100% I think that's really well said and that's really a key part of this you know the number of times that I've heard people on panels say you know or respond to the question like hey how do you create better safer spaces when somebody's having a bad trip now bad trip or challenging trip or however you want to word that 
the number of times I've heard people say, oh, I really believe like if you really, you know, you, you work through that and you're going to, you know, it's going to be, it's wonderful. It's really great to go through bad trips. Well, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> you're telling me, uh, you know, a single mother who is, you know, working 16, 18 hours a day, you know, is, you know, if, if she's racialized um, and then she has a challenging trip, you're thinking, you're telling me it's just about like, hey, think positively. Love, love and light. light, man. Yeah, love and light. It's like, oh, I can heal the world. I go to, you know, I go into a refugee camp. I'll give everybody high fives and yell, eat cake. And yeah, poverty solved. No problem. That kind of bullshit. Like, again, to your point, I'm saying this because it's, it perpetuates this idea, this single one-dimensional idea of what healing looks like. And we have to grow the fuck up, to be honest. That's the part that upsets me the most. I'm not saying it's wrong. I want to be very clear. I'm not here to, like further polarize the space i'm just saying we need different versions of what healing looks like each to their own ultimately if psychedelics becomes a cartoon a caricature of its space and we sort of further polarize and we only say this is what healing looks like we failed completely the whole point is choice to each their own that's really the entire purpose of this whole thing and honoring all the different perspectives we have within us um I, i'm curious about Let's have a few more questions. Uh, curious about your personal experience with with these ideas around minorities and spaces in the psychedelic world, and um, your relationship like to that based on maybe a lived experience. Like, what have you experienced? Um, uh, you know, navigating the space for many years now. I've been very lucky. I think you know, I've been very lucky in my in my experiences. I've not felt overtly like i mean this is probably because you know maybe i'm like a weird candidate to answer this question because i've grown up feeling pretty much on the outside of every community and every place that i've been in right you know to give you an example like i i'm an artist but my background's in molecular biology and cancer research i'm a science nerd but i love art i've been art you know, I've been I've been making art. I've been playing music for twenty twenty five years. Um, but in terms of like where I fit in, I was too geeky for the artists, too artsy for the geeks. If I talk about my background, I from Bangladesh, grew up. You know, I was born there, but I grew up in Saudi Arabia in an English speaking school, full of lower middle class kids. Uh, but because the education was so good, all the rich kids came to our school in a place like Saudi Arabia, which at that time was completely, you know, locked up at a Western education in a highly xenophobic sort of society. Um, I had a Bangladeshi passport, um, but I hung out with people who were not Bangladeshis. Um, you know, like I'm a Muslim who, who has piercings and tattoos, who swears profusely because I love expressing myself that way not in a vile I, I feel like you can swear very strategically which is really important for emphasis well they say people that swear are actually more <laughs> honest in general so you you're probably I'm just, just very, very honest, honest. okay good good i'm glad you see me pascal um <laughs> <laughs> so i mean like my the point of saying all this is that i think you know i might not be the best person to answer this question because i've always felt on the margins anyway now i'm in a time in my life where i see that as a strength and not as a paralyzing source of doubt as I used to. 
because I can now empathize, empath, you know, empathize with a larger, a wider set of people and their experiences. So it's it's more about what have this per, what has this person experienced? How can I relate to them? But going, coming back to your question, of course, there's a overwhelming lack of diversity of thought, of lived experiences, of class, of culture in the psychedelic world to this day, you know. Um, there's a lot of ignorance, I think. And by ignorance, I mean not only... I don't mean... So there's ignorance as a like accidental. That is okay. If somebody says, hey, where are you from? And where's Bangladesh? I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Okay, it's great. It's an opportunity for have a good conversation. You know, I, I enjoy people. But if people, you know, if people are like, ah, where's that? Whatever. Is it India or something? I still get that. That's sort of like, that's willful ignorance, right? And I've seen, I see both. I see a, sort of like a naive ignorance in this space, but a lot of willful ignorance. Like you don't want to hear the other perspective. And it goes back to exceptionalism, right? This idea that, again, because you licked a toad, you're now a beautiful person, and now you can go shine gold on the world, right? Um, I've seen a lot of that. That is, I find that irritating, um, but not to the point where I, like it gets to me. I'm just like, it, I accept it for what it is. It's one dimension of this place, you know. It, it, we will grow up. We will actually have a much more flourishing community. We will, and that's part of the work that you're doing, Pascal. What I'm trying to do, um, but I'm not experienced anything overt, but. But the one thing that I did expect, did, did, you know, have experienced overtly is the, in certain groups of people, I think there's over-fetishization of diversity. I think it's a nice word. It's nice to say we're diverse. It's nice to say I care about diversity. It's a lot of that, a lot of that going around. But, like, if you, I, I rarely see people who have the patience to sit down and actually take on a diverse perspective. You know, it's like how, you know, straight men, we are very fragile, right? Uh, we like to think about that we're good allies and stuff, but when it comes to actually listening to the other side, to the lived experiences of women, you know, <laughs> there's not there's not much tolerance for it. And I see that a lot. I see that a lot. I think there's over fetishizing of diversity and, nobody's, you know, there's very few people who actually step up and listen to it. And a tokenization of it yeah. too, as well. Like I've been part of an organization where it's like, we don't have a person of color on our team. We really need to get one right now. You know, there's this totally. whole thing around like, hey, that's that's the diversity we need. It's just like a photo yeah. on a website. No, right? totally. And I appreciate you saying that. I think, and and look, these are very difficult conversations. It's a process, right? And I, for one, try not to point fingers because I try to invite people in. There are people who, whose minds you will never change. You know, so I'll give you an example of a conference mm -hmm. that we had. I don't want to say where it was or with who, but it was really, it was the first conference that I went to that was really um, made a very strong emphasis on showcasing or bringing to the forefront in the leadership, in the organization, um, in the facilitators, people of color, which I super appreciated. It was amazing. You know, but by day three, near the end, when there was feedback, some of the quiet feedback was like, yeah, diversity is okay. It's important. But do we need three days of it? I'm like, what the fuck did you show up then? <laughs> 
That's it. Three days took your it it broke you. <laughs> that was it. That's your that's your tolerance for diversity. It's like yeah, I like diversity, but in small doses. Like, at least say that. That's more honest. That is fucking honest, and I I respect somebody who says that. But don't give me this bullshit about like oh diversity, and then quietly like you you just you tap the next guy on the shoulder, go like oh there's too much diversity here, right? I love that you say you're inviting people, and it's kind of you know the calling in culture rather than the calling out culture, right? Like. Um, what's your, what's your vision? Like, what's, what are you wanting to invite people in, you know, people are listening at home and, um, what are ways that they can expand their lens and, and, um, you know, um, welcome in, you know, the different perspectives that are around them in their lives. I really appreciate that you asked that question, Pascal. Thank you. I, I try not to ever get into a headspace where I'm a teacher. I want to be a student because that's when I can keep learning. And I think that is the most noble pursuit is to be a student of life. And I think to be a, to be a student and be authentically open to learning, you have to first and foremost have humility. And I think humility is the, mo the most powerful aspect of the medicine is the humility, right? And that from humility comes the forgiveness, comes the compassion, right? I forgive myself because... I know now that I'm capable of being foolish. I know now I'm capable of being violent. I know now I'm capable of being, you know, acting out of bounds. And I forgive myself. And I also know if I act from a position of humility, I can be better. I can grow. I can do better. And hence, I can show up more for my, the people I love. The humility is the part that I think we don't talk about enough. And you have humility, you're inadvertently going to spend more time listening and less time talking. No matter where in the world you go, there's one thing that is common amongst false prophets, preachers, and politicians. Is that they talk too fucking much. They don't listen. And I see a lot of talking here. And I am certainly not impervious, again. And I have to remind myself to listen, to be humble, you know, be funny, be fucking hilarious. Like it's all, you know, like I, I joke, like either it's, it's all like, um, you know, everyone's going to die. No question about it. Right. Elon Musk takes a shit for sure. Right. He's, he's a human being. He's also going to die someday. Everyone's going to fucking die. The point is whether you turn into worm food <laughs> or you become stardust is up to you, but you will die. And so it's, you know, it's all beautiful. It's all a fucking joke. Experience all of it, learn and empower. That's what I'm going to say. If you're curious about something, if you're curious about psychedelics, reach out, but don't settle for the first person you hear from. If your gut is saying, I don't feel safe, keep going. Meet other people. There's lots of beautiful communities. Go meet them. Go find out. Don't do anything that your gut is not letting you. If you don't feel safe, don't do it. Safety is first and foremost. But if you allow someone to invite you a little deeper, you should be open to it as well. There's a fine line between safety and adventure, right? When do you want to take the leap? That is going to be subject to the person that you speak with. But there's no rush. Take your time. You know, wanting and wanting to learn is the first step. Mm-hmm. Words of wisdom from a humble student. <laughs> Who Thank talks you. too much, so maybe I'm not following my advice. <laughs> no, you don't. No, you don't. 
Thank you so much, Rod. There's a lot we could keep going on here for, and it was a lovely conversation. Um, where can people find you online? Oh, thanks so much, Pascal. I had a really good time. I appreciate it. I'm very grateful for the invitation. Um, you can find me on Instagram, uh, Rod Siraj. Uh, my, minority Trip Report is at, my, uh, at Minority Trip on Instagram. Uh, Mission Club is missionclub.co. Um, yeah, just come find us, follow us, and send me an email if you're curious about anything I've said. Um, I love having these conversations. It's a exciting, complex roller coaster of a life and the space we're in. And uh, but it's just the beginning. It's super early, and uh, everybody can pay a part here. Beautiful. Thank you so My much, Rod. Thank you. Take care, everyone.